There have been few who had a better bird's eye view of the events that have shaped modern American history than William Vandenhoevel. As a young State Department official working for General William Wild Bill Donovan, he was in Vietnam in 1954 when Dien Bien Phu fell to the communists, resulting in the end of French colonial rule and the start of the Americanization of the war. He was on the Austrian-Hungarian border in 1956, helping to coordinate the resettlement of refugees fleeing the brutal Soviet crackdown in Budapest. He was an aide to Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy at the Justice Department, assigned to ensure the desegregation of schools in Virginia, and later served as a key advisor to Kennedy during his run for the presidency, a campaign cut short by his assassination. A friend and trusted confidant of everybody from Eleanor Roosevelt to Jimmy Carter and Edward Kennedy, Vanden Heuvel was a champion of American liberalism when the liberal ideals of a commitment to equality of opportunity at home and multilateral alliances abroad reign supreme. They are ideals very much out of favor now in Donald Trump's Washington, a subject that has dismayed Vanden Heuvel to no end as he makes clear in his new book, Hope and History, a memoir of tumultuous times. It's a book that recounts a lifetime of buried treasures, making him the perfect guest for this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Ambassador, it is truly a uh, honor to have you with us on this podcast to talk about your book. Welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael. So, uh, you know, there's so much to talk about, but I want to start out with your time working for Wild Bill Donovan, the founder of the OSS, the forerunner to the CIA, one of the legendary figures of American intelligence. Tell us about Wild Bill Donovan. Donovan. Well, I'll tell you how I ended up with him. Maybe yeah. that would. Donovan was a great lawyer, and I had graduated from law school, Cornell. And he had offered me a position in his law firm. And I was awaiting being called up in the military because it was the time of the Korean War. So one night I was working late in the library. Donovan came in. Of course, he didn't know who I was. And he said, young man, can you help me? I'm debating Estes Kefauver tomorrow as to whether or not the Democratic Party has been good for the country. And this was during the 1952 election between <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson. That's right. right. Uh, so I said, well, General, he, he was a conservative Republican, Donovan. Donovan was, right. Donovan yeah. was conservative Republican. I said, well, General, and I spoke to him with the temerity of a 22-year-old. I said, I'm a Democrat, General, and I'm a Rooseveltian Democrat. But I would be very happy to help you, of course. But may I suggest the best way I can help you is to tell you what Kefauver is going to say. So we worked through the night on that. And he took me with him to the debate the next day. And he won the debate handily. And I stayed with him till he died. 
out of that episode right. beginning. Eisenhower appointed him ambassador to Thailand and his personal representative in Southeast Asia. And Donovan took me with him as sort of his chief of staff. So that's how you uh, go to Vietnam. That's how I go to uh, Vietnam. In 1954, when the French are trying to hold off the Viet Minh at this outpost. I'll tell you, it didn't take me long, and I was a young man, to see that this was a disaster and that the French could not win it. And that what Roosevelt had said time and again, that the age of the colonialism was over and the French refused to accept it. The State Department was dominated by Frenchophiles. Anything about Vietnam went through France, not through their own charter. And then the cover of my book is Robert Kennedy in Paris in 1967, coming from a conversation with General de Gaulle, where the whole hour was spent on Vietnam and ended up with de Gaulle saying, to Robert Kennedy, you and I have suffered great wounds in our lives, but you are still young. I'm an old man. But let me give you my advice. Stay away from Vietnam, because nobody who's associated with that issue is going to prosper. It's a disaster for your country. You've made a terrible mistake. You've got to correct it. But you be the source of the correction, because your leadership is what America's going to want. But given what you saw in uh, 54, yeah. you must have had misgivings already about American involvement in Vietnam. Uh, considerable, except Nodin Diem, who succeeded to the French, was a man of vast courage and uh, had a, uh, uh, he was a nationalist. I mean, he was anti-colonial, been 17 years in prison. He had credentials. And not corrupt, it. like... Uh, he had the possibility of winning. We were still very much influenced by the Korean War. And we saw that where we could save South Korea, we lost North Korea. The attitude was with with Jim, maybe we could save South Vietnam, even though we were going to lose the North. It didn't work out that way. Jim, his brother, turned out to be a corrupt sort of semi-gangster, and, and the credibility of the government was lost. And then he was assassinated, too. One of the points you make in the book is that after the fall of Dien Bien Phu, there were a lot of people in the United States calling for American intervention in the war then, including then Vice President Richard Nixon, I think Secretary Dulles and others were pushing for American intervention, bombing, but President and, and nuclear and, and yeah, nuclear it, it was intervention. on the table. It was on the table, yeah. and President Eisenhower resisted that with the support of then minority leader Lyndon Johnson. Absolutely. It's the irony of our times to think. To me, Eisenhower is one of the unsung heroes of America. He's truly a great man, a great general, a great president, my children. But he, when he saw war on the horizon, he had the power through his personal experience and life experience to cut it off. He never would have made, in my judgment, would have made the Vietnam era of making that his own. Although he did, you know, support the Diem regime, went along with the cancellation of elections no, that didn't. were contemplated under the Geneva Accord. Um, that was a major error. Right. Well, his uh, Eisenhower's uh, genius actually summed up in the title 
of a book by our former uh, boss, Evan Thomas, was he was a master bluffer. Ike's Bluff was the name of Evan Thomas's yeah. book. Yeah. And he bluffed, but never actually, to keep us out of war. Yeah. I was very involved in the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. Donovan was chairman of the National Refugee International Rescue Committee. And so it was his last great public act to go to the Hungarian Revolution. But at that point, the Suez also happened. And Eisenhower was confronted with the pressures of dealing with the Suez and perhaps intervening in the Hungarian at the same time. He adamantly said, it's not our war. It's not our place to fight. We'll pick the time and place we'll do that. So he had the authority, because of his, who he was, to stop a lot of things, whereas others didn't have that. Well, let's move forward, because you worked on the election of uh, John F. Kennedy, who escalated our involvement in uh, Vietnam, um, sent more advisors there. But ultimately, you worked for Robert F. Kennedy, who became a huge opponent of the war and based his his presidential run in, in 1968 on that issue. So tell us about the Kennedy campaign in 1960, and then let's talk about your working for uh, RFK. Well, it was, it was an extraordinary campaign in the sense. I, I once had dinner with Harry Truman, with Thomas Hart Benton, the great artist. Who was a... <laughs> well, you, you and I can't really say anything like no. that, can we, Isakoff? <laughs> That's why we have such as uh, Bill Who was a good friend of the show. And yeah. Truman had a, an extra glass of his branch water and bourbon. And so he said, it was just five of us at dinner. And he said that this was on April 15th or 16th in 61, Kennedy. And it was before the Bay of Pigs, but after the inaugural. And Truman said, uh, Kennedy will be a one-term president. He said, the country's not ready for a Catholic, and it's not going to accept him. Then he went around five different states showing the vote, how Kennedy got very few th- votes in Missouri. Stuart Symington got 600,000 victory. So there was still that feeling, especially in the Middle West, that Kennedy as a Catholic could not survive the political heat. That, of course, turned out to be very wrong. And uh, Kennedy's involvement in Vietnam was real. And I've spent countless hours talking with Robert Kennedy about it, and the president occasionally, too. But it was clear to me always that uh, Kennedy, who knew more about Vietnam than any other senator beside Mike Mansfield, really knew that it was not in America's interest to get involved. Strangely, MacArthur had said to him at one point, and visit to MacArthur's home in the Waldorf Astoria. General Douglas MacArthur. Good old Douglas MacArthur, (laughs) who at one point had wanted to invade China, said to Kennedy, whatever you do, stay out of a land war in Asia. So that was... Kennedy knew that to get involved in this struggle and make it America's war was a disaster. So he had warnings from de Gaulle and General MacArthur that Vietnam was a mistake for the United States. So in 1968, you worked for Bobby Kennedy at the Justice Department. Then in 1968, he is contemplating running for, wrestling with running for president, challenging 
the incumbent, Lyndon Johnson, over the Vietnam War. Now, I got to ask you, I happened to be over Thanksgiving at a friend's house who had a whole stack of old Life magazines from 1968, which included an article written by Jack Newfield about RFK's decision to run for president. There's a picture of RFK with you and a bunch of other advisors in that edition of Life magazine. And Newfield wrote that you were among those advising him not to run for president. Is that accurate? And why? I think nobody had a a sense of certainty about that decision. First of all, to challenge an incumbent president of your own party was almost equivalent to political disaster. It would mean, as it subsequently meant for Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy, it would mean a division in the party that would cause defeat for everything you stood for. And, of course, at that point, nobody had any inkling that LBJ uh, was going to drop out. No. No one could believe that Lyndon Johnson, who would spend his whole life desperately trying to get to the White House, nobody could believe that he was voluntarily going to leave it. Except, uh, no, not Robert Kennedy didn't either. I was with him the night Johnson gave that speech on March 31st, 1968, where he withdrew, and everybody in the room was just jubilant, ready to go. Not Robert Kennedy. He knew immediately that Johnson's withdrawal from the race made it a much more difficult contest. And he was concerned. I mean, he, he had no doubt about his attitudes on Vietnam, and he knew from his conversations with McNamara and others that they had given up hope of winning the war as a military aspect which was verified by the Pentagon Papers. But they didn't know how to get out. Nobody really did the way it was happening. But Kennedy felt a lot of responsibility to his brother. He would frequently say, you know, my brother also was president and had responsibilities in Vietnam. So he wasn't—he didn't want to make the whole situation worse by running. He would only run if he thought that it could serve some great purpose. When Eugene McCarthy— won his 42% victory in New Hampshire primary, Bobby felt he had no choice, that he either had to run or lose the possibility of really controlling the situation. Why not just back Gene McCarthy? You probably knew them. It was not a a possible (laughs) marriage. Ted Kennedy, the night Bobby decided in March 1968... The question came up, how to handle McCarthy. Yeah. And um, so it was decided Ted should fly out to Wisconsin where McCarthy was campaigning and see if they could negotiate an agreement about how to run against Johnson, who was still in the race, by cooperating with each other so that Johnson would be denied the nomination. McCarthy wouldn't listen to it. He had no interest in it. And McCarthy played an important role in focusing Vietnam. But Hubert Humphrey once said to me that if Robert Kennedy had lived, whoever won, whether it was Humphrey or whether it was Kennedy, would have won the election because the other one would have worked for him. And really, McCarthy, he said, didn't do that. McCarthy, he said, did not help me in any possible way. And it was a very close election, as you remember. Right. Could have yeah. been a big difference. 
So this week, as we record this podcast, is the anniversary uh, of um, Bobby Kennedy's says. assassination. Um, where were you that night? And, I had uh, just left him after the debate with McCarthy to come back to organize New York, where we still had a primary and we had a, a very good chance of winning it all. So that was uh, the last I saw him was right after the McCarthy debate. And But um, who knows whether he would have won the nomination I've seen subsequently a memorandum by someone very close to Martin Luther King who said in that memorandum, this was written before Robert Kennedy was assassinated, that King had decided to endorse Kennedy. He had never done that with any candidate before, but that he had decided to endorse because he was convinced Kennedy's commitments were much broader than to just Vietnam and that he could work very successfully with him. Speaking, that would have made a difference. Whether it would have made the yeah. difference, I don't know. Well, speaking of King, we, we sort of skipped over a very important chapter of your career, which is civil rights. And uh, I think Mike mentioned this in, in the introduction, but school integration, particularly in Virginia, and one county in Virginia, a case there that became part of the Brown versus Board of Education case, that's Prince Edward County. I think, you know, a lot of people don't know this story. It's remarkable that for five years, the county government withheld funds yeah. for integration, which kept the schools closed, public schools closed. The, Tell us that story. The Virginia of those days was very different than the Virginia of today, where we begin to see a progressive force and liberal force in the South. In those days, it was dominated by the bird machine, and it was uh, also, they were the leaders of the fight against desegregation. So Prince Edward County was one of the five cases that was part of Brown against Board of Education, which was decided in May 54. But of course, it was very slow and all due course moved on. Virginia decided to really test it. And what they did was to pick Prince Edward County as the balance, as the attack wave. And this was aggressive resistance. Massive resistance, Massive resistance. It. Massive resistance is what they called it. And what that meant was they took the position that the Supreme Court had the authority, perhaps, to order desegregation, but it did not have the authority to order you to have public schools. So Virginia said, we're going to close the public schools rather than desegregate them, and we're going to use Prince Edward County as a model and see what the court does. Well, the case went on for five years. When Kennedy came into office, the schools had already been closed. The African-American children had no place to go and no schools were provided. And the whites were given charter schools, private schools from which they did. So Bobby sent me into Virginia to see what could be done. And my recommendation was, let's build a school system. Let's show the South how we can do it. Let's make a school that whites and blacks will really have the best education available to them. And we did that, and we involved great Southerners like Colgate Darden, who has been president of the University of Virginia, governor of Virginia. We got black presidents of the black colleges. School teachers from all over America volunteered to come in and teach. We raised the money, it was all private. And it was done within two months, an astonishing thing. And it was a wonderful school system. And where it worked for a year, 
and then the court ordered the schools to be open. We won the case nine to nothing. <laughs> but our hope was that by the time the schools opened, that we would have built a bridge between white and black so that they could understand that this school system was available to both of them and give them equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. It worked out wonderfully. I mean, in Virginia, it's uh, part of the civil rights history that is really given great credit, I think. Well, on that note, I want to sort of cut to events of today. And um, let, me, you know, let me just uh, ask one question oh, before. Okay. This is a story that I, I found astonishing involving your daughter, Katrina, who oh, uh, many of our listeners of will, will know as the uh, former editor of, of The Nation magazine and uh, a regular on, uh, on still cable publisher. television. Still and, publisher. And <laughs> still publisher. In 1978, I believe, she was 18 years old. You were ambassador in Geneva. To the United Nations in Europe. To the United Nations in Europe. In Geneva, right. And she comes out, she flies from New York uh, for a visit. You're headed to the airport to pick her up. And the Marine on duty says it's going to be pretty busy there because uh, there's been a hijacking. And according to your account, you say, well, you didn't really think much about it. And you went. Little did you know, Katrina was on the plane that was hijacked. What happened? It was an, ex- an extraordinary occasion. There was a passenger on the plane who, in the middle of the night, had sent a message to uh, the pilot saying that they had explosives in their suitcase. And at at 4 o'clock the next day, unless Rudolf Hess and Sirhan Sirhan were released, that they were going to blow up the Now, Rudolf Hess, who had been the number three Nazi (laughs) official under Adolf Hitler, was then in Spandau Prison in uh, Berlin. The last Nazi prisoner. The last Nazi prisoner. prisoner. And so this guy, the hijacker, I'm trying to uh, get the connection between Rudolf Hess and Sirhan Sirhan. I imagine there must be some anti-Semitic yeah. uh, <laughs> element here. I never figured out the connection either. But the, there yeah. was a, the detail that I love is that the uh, terrorist gave his note to a flight attendant who was asleep. That's right. It's like out of a Woody Allen movie or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, That's right. which meant that no one knew who the terrorist was, right? Nobody, we never knew. I was going to say, did you ever find out? <laughs> we did after the incident and because the FBI then followed a suspect yeah. for two months through Europe. And it turned out to be a person who had immigrated to Germany, from Germany, lived in York, Yorkville in Manhattan, and felt very strongly that the Allies and Americans had treated Rudolf Hess badly. <laughs> but you were involved in negotiating yes, the release I, of the passengers. But, but we were negotiating with ourselves because he never <laughs> revealed himself. Yeah. He was just sitting on the plane with the threat of the terrorism being valid because you could do that. So when everybody, I, I handled the negotiation for the six hours and then Cy Vance got into it and then the president of Switzerland so we decided that we had no alternative but to rush the plane and see if we could close this off. And I never saw anything move faster than the passengers of that plane <laughs> as they got off. But Katrina, Including Katrina. Katrina had sat there for all the hours of the day and written an op-ed piece about what was happening. <laughs> Which got published in the Washington Which Post. Which got published right. the next day in, right. the, in the Washington Post. So it was a... It was a very dramatic moment, and the final irony of it all, when I was then ambassador to New York to the embassy, this fellow who had done it 
went to trial and he was convicted. And then Katrina was coming home from school one day and somebody handed her a button, free the UN too, which was <laughs> to free this man from the who had put all of this thing together. <laughs> what I said to the pilot of the plane when we started the discussion was, my daughter's on the plane. I don't want to show any special privilege to her, but I don't want her to be singled out either. So she never suffered anything with that. She was treated like all the other passengers on the plane. But it was an ordeal I don't think that any of them will ever forget. I want to cut to events of today because uh, in your last chapter, uh, you really have some um, uh, really strong words about where we are today. You've been such a champion of liberal ideals over the years, and uh, you write, Americans are confronted today with the most fundamental clash of values that we have seen in my lifetime. The election of 2016 put our country in the hands of a cabal of fortune hunters who think that history began with their election to office. They have no respect of the struggles of the last 80 years that have made the United States the greatest country in the world. They have mastered the art of insult and threat. They are bullies with the character and integrity of bullies. They have humiliated good and decent people. They have pretended to patriotism while insulting an authentic hero, Senator John McCain, whose service to his country is legendary while their own is non-existent. You are clearly not a fan of our current president. Does he represent to you a repudiation of everything you've fought for in your public life? He does. He represents to me a repudiation of the Roosevelt era. And the ascendancy of the presidency under Franklin Roosevelt gave us the country we live in. Arthur Schlesinger used to say, the structure of America that we live in was devised by Franklin Roosevelt. In the 75 years since the Roosevelt era began, America found its greatness. We've celebrated D-Day this week, right? In D-Day, I didn't hear a speaker mention the fact that Roosevelt, in constructing the military victory, worked simultaneously for the peace that had to follow it. And his judgment was, and every president who's followed him has followed that, that collective security was the means by which you could best serve America's interests that you had a government that was concerned with people of need, you could construct a society that was just and fair. That if we helped the Europeans put together something that was now named European Union, we would avoid the civil wars of Europe. That we had gone through two civil wars, World War I and World War II, and we had to avoid a disaster. We had to bring Germany into an integrated role in Europe and at the same time, bring in all of the European countries to serve as a strong force, ultimately against whatever enemy threatened it. That America's security was best based in that kind of an, of an alliance. I mean, to attack Canada, to attack Mexico, was a direct assault on Roosevelt's good neighbor policy. To me, Trump is no negotiator. He's a bully. Right. And he he comes into a situation and screams and yells and people have to find some accommodation with him because countries have to live on, live through this. Do, but I think you, it's an enormous disservice what he's done to the American vision of a great country. Do you think that Trump and Trumpism and the current Republican Party under Trump is, an, is a historical anomaly 
or do you worry that it's it's a new normal? No, I think forward? it's a continuation of a constant th- thread in American history, the know-nothings. Mm-hmm. The know-nothings in the 19th century knew nothing, they said. But they had political success. They won four or five states, the governorships, et cetera, but they didn't win the presidency. Now they've won the presidency, and Trump acts like the typical know-nothing person in terms of the politics of the 19th century. It's always been there. In the Roosevelt era, we had America first. I remember as a child, America first, right? <laughs> it wasn't the kind of America you wanted to understand. It Roosevelt was, was standing up to, the, to Hitler and to the Nazis, and America first was trying to say, stay out of it. It's not our battle. So Roosevelt made us a, an international country and did it in a way with a social revolution that changed American society. We are now, in my judgment, unavoidably going to have constitutional crises no matter what happens. Well, on that note, you know, I want to ask you about your views on Trump and impeachment right now in the wake of the Mueller report. Now, I want to bring it up because Katrina's magazine, The Nation which has been a a voice of liberalism for over a century, has been very skeptical about the Russia story, has published articles seeking to debunk the idea that there was a massive Russian attack on our election, questioning the ideas of uh, the ideas that there might have been collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, which, of course, is something that Democrats in Congress fervently believe. How do you um, process what your daughter's magazine has been publishing about Trump and Russia, including articles by your son-in-law, Stephen Cohen, <laughs> and uh, reconciling that with where most of your party is? Well, I don't accept the Russian collusion argument. I mean, if America is so fragile that a $15 million investment in social media can transform election results in our country, we're in trouble. I think that there's a very close connection between Trump and Russia. Mm -hmm. I do believe that. But I think it's a money connection. I think it comes out of the oligarchs. And I think when his company was going bankrupt, he reached out and they were one, perhaps the only source of real money in in the world, and he locked in with them. And someday we will see the degree, the dimension of connection between the oligarchs and uh, I should Trump point personally. out that last week on the show we had David Enrich of the New York Times, the finance editor of the New York Times, who's writing a book on Deutsche Bank yeah. and has dug into it. But he has said, and he said on our show, he, he has yet to see the evidence of any connection between the Deutsche Bank loans to Trump and the Russian oligarchs who Deutsche Bank was laundering money for. I mean, I am sure that if there is a connection, as I believe there was, it is hidden very deep into the walls of the Kremlin or somewhere. And it's not just Putin. I think Russia is run by a committee of oligarchs, and he's chairman of those oligarchs. But they have tremendous influence. And I think what we were beginning to see was the influence of foreign wealth. One of the great threats to American democracy is this covert intervention of foreign money. And I think the Congress could best defend us by forcing the identification of anybody who's contributing so that you can't give behind the screen of some phony corporation, but people have to be identified openly. That said, should Trump be impeached? No. 
I don't think so. Really? I Why don't not? Think so. Because you can't do it. The Republicans own the Senate. Right. You've got to have two-thirds of the Senate vote to convict him. We'll spend all our time in a process that we know we can't win. That doesn't make sense to me. Is that, a uh, on your part, a, a political calculation, yeah. or is it about uh, is it a civic issue? In other words, tactically, don't do it because it'll uh, backfire on Democrats, it'll hurt their chances in 2020, or is it that you need to have the backing of the American people, that it's wrong to end a presidency in this way if you don't have the backing of the American people? I believe that. I believe that the Trump presidency to be, has to be ended by the American people, to be accepted and to be really valid. And I think to, to spend your time on an impeachment process that you know from the beginning you can't win is to divert attention from what we have to do, which is to educate America as to what the meaning is of the Trump presidency. So I can understand why the Congress would be interested in tremendous amount that people might be interested in what's happened. But that's my that's my position. So you think it. Nancy Pelosi is I think playing she's right. it right? Uh, Nancy Pelosi is the smartest politician in America, I think. Okay. If your goal then is to end the Trump presidency, who's your candidate to do it? I don't have that yet. I don't have that yet. I think there's a. It's a. It's a strong field, but the the problem is when you run against an incumbent president, you never have the stature that the president has. And he stands as one single force in the country speaking and can command the news and dominate the news as he does on a daily basis. It's a very hard race to run. But I think uh, of the 23 candidates. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who interests you the most? <laughs> we now have. I, I really have, have to watch them. I'm not close enough to the situation. I watched the other night um, Elizabeth Warren, and I was very impressed by what she did. And one thing that impressed me was that she talked about corporate America in a very intelligent way. Democrats can't exclude corporate America from the context of running this country. They're a major part of it. And I thought, you know, that they make a joke out of, I've got a plan. Elizabeth Warren's got a plan for her. But she, she made a very good case that she has some very good plans. And I think Joe Biden's running is... I think it's a it's a tough race for him. Tough because because there's a new generation, yeah, who's taking taking control. They're not. I thought the congressional election was a very good election. Mm-hmm. It brought a lot of people into government who were first class, and with a little bit of experience, they all have the political skills to do what has to be done in our country. I think, but I would. Um, I would say that I can see the rationale for a Biden candidacy. He can stand up to Trump immediately. and But uh, the, four, the tides of change are... Uh, he's leading, in the, <laughs> he's leading in the polls by a lot, but you doesn't expect him... Anything. Doesn't mean anything. Doesn't, as somebody doesn't, who's, who's seen this uh, yeah. many times, uh, I imagine. Well, I, I think people ought to be listening closely to these words because there's a lot of punditry out there. Not a lot of wisdom born from the kind of experience that you've had. We're really happy to have you on the show, Ambassador, and we will have you you back. Thank you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. 
Thanks to Ambassador William J. Vandenhoevel for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.